The Future Sport Podcast is brought to you by Three Advance, developers of sports tech apps that are AI-powered and UX-focused. So if you're looking to create some apps for your startup or your sports biz calls for some artificial or business intelligence, you should check out Three Advance. They're incredible. Go to 3advance.com. That's the number 3advance.com. Empire. Where is the VR boom? I think there's a couple things going on. Number one, it, it just takes time. I mean, yeah. think about where we were just five years ago with, with the with smartphones. Um, they were really popular, but they hadn't necessarily taken over the world. That's Derek Belch, founder and CEO of the virtual reality company Striver. Is there still time for VR to make the most of people being stuck inside? This is the Future Sport Podcast. I'm Bram Weinstein. It wasn't that long ago that we all thought we'd be wearing headsets and sitting courtside for the NBA Finals. That hasn't happened yet, although the real courtside seats are pie in the sky these days too. Derek Belch looks back at the VR past and looks into his VR crystal ball for where that business is going. Plus, Oren Moravchik, CEO Respect on the tech behind improving basketball, and Mike Kruger from USA Football on the safety issues that still matter even amid a very new level of safety concerns for that and every sport. But first, the future is now for year two in Paul Rabel's Premier Lacrosse League. You buying a ticket, that could eventually tell a lot about you to the people you're buying the ticket from. And that might be the thought process with Paul Rabel's Premier Lacrosse League in a new deal that they have with Ticketmaster. Emily Karen from Front Office Sports is watching that closely. Hey, Emily, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? So they have a new deal with Ticketmaster. Can you kind of describe what went into it with the PLL? Right. So the PLL and Ticketmaster announced this partnership where Ticketmaster is now not only the official ticketing partner of the league, but they are also a title sponsor, which was a pretty unique twist. Um, it's not very often that you see that in sports. We saw that with the D-League rebranding as the G-League following the partnership with Gatorade. So I think it's a pretty similar approach there. Um, so Ticketmaster is going to streamline their entire ticketing process um, and kind of revamp that, which I think is pretty significant for a tour-based league like the PLL, um, where you're working with different venues, different box offices, different ticketing providers. And they are also going to provide them with kind of a whole suite of marketing um, and analytics tools that will help the PLL you know, gain a little bit more insight into the fan base and into the people buying their tickets. So let's talk about the privacy aspect of that, that, you know, when I go and buy a ticket from Ticketmaster for whatever I'm going to see, I never went into it with the understanding that they were going to know a tremendous amount about me and potentially share that. So right. we feel like, what's happening here, you know, that Ticketmaster, I guess, feels empowered to do so. And what do they know about the buyers? Right. So I don't think this is anything um, too far beyond what, you know, normal websites are tracking right now with cookies and different kind of information like that. Um, but I think it tells you, you know, kind of the regions that your buyers are predominantly coming from and where your biggest markets may be. And that helps with things like planning for the next season of what locations, you know, to really focus on in terms of landing games there and weekends there and whatnot. Um, 
And I think there obviously is a privacy concern, but I think, you know, wouldn't at the end of the day, the information the PLL is getting is the information that you're giving Ticketmaster. And you're giving Ticketmaster information about where you live and what you're buying. And I think that's what they're really targeting. I don't know that they're going to be gaining a ton more um, insight beyond that. Um, but they will be able to track, you know, if you actually show up and if you're at the venue and you're using these digital tickets, you know, where in the venue are you coming in and where in the venue are you interacting um, with the league and with the offerings there. And the Premier Lacrosse League, they wanted this deal. Why? I think it's kind of multifaceted there. I mean, I think there was probably a pretty chaotic uh, ticketing system on their end to begin with. Like I said, you know, they were working with multiple venues, multiple ticketing partners, just because of the nature of their league, right? They're using individual venues in every different city they're going to and that ends up being 13 different cities so last season they used six different ticketing providers and Ticketmaster was one of those and I think they found the most streamlined process and the most simple process through Ticketmaster and I think it was the most beneficial to them in terms of the tools that they were able to provide as well and so I think it will a bring consistency which is what they were looking for and I think it makes the job of their ticketing and sales department internally and their in-house team I think it helps them significantly Um, I'll let you go on this Um, I I know that you have been following them through their first season into what will be their their second season so I just want to kind of get a big picture since you're still kind of intertwined with their news how did they do in year one and and what are fans and, and what are they looking forward to as they expand into year two Right. I mean, I think if you look at the fact that they are already expanding from six teams to seven teams going into league or season two, I think the league sees season one as a success, and I think they see a market for more. Um, I think one of the things they struggled with last season that they're really trying to kind of tackle with this Ticketmaster partnership, um, at least to a certain extent, is you know, attendance and just increasing awareness and getting more people to the games. And I think this season they were more strategic with the locations they chose and the timing, making sure they don't overlap with the youth tournaments in the regions that they're coming to that could take fans away from potentially attending um, the PLL weekends. And I think they're really, you know, just trying to bank on kind of their social presence and the fact that most of their fans and their audience, you know, are digital natives. And so kind of amping up those efforts going into season two and really being strategic about, um, you know, what worked last season and reflecting on that. And I think I give credit to the Rabel brothers and the league, you know, more broadly for really, paying attention to what works and what doesn't um, and capitalizing on that going into year two. You can read more from Emily Karen at Front Office Sports. Thanks so much, Emily. Yep. Up next, Derek Belch, CEO and founder of Striver on the before and after for VR. This is the Future Sport Podcast. Our guest this week is the founder and CEO of Striver, Derek Belch, and they are one of the leaders in virtual reality in all the marketplaces. Hey, Derek, great to catch up with you again. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, Bram, thank you for having me. Um, I think it's been some time since we spoke, so can you kind of talk about how virtual reality has progressed here over the last couple of years? Yeah, so, you know, industry-wide, um, things are, are continuing to move forward very quickly. I mean, we've seen a number of hardware and software innovations from the major players uh, in, in the space. Uh, Oculus, which is a, a Facebook company, HTC, 
uh, Google, Microsoft, Hewlett Packard starting to do some cool stuff. Um, so you know, we, we continue to see investment in the space. Uh, things are, are have not gone completely bonkers on the consumer side, like um, like some people and, and investors had hoped, you know, five years ago. But that said, with with the um, release of the Oculus Quest to the market uh, in, in mid to late last year. Um, you know, at a minimum for the gamers, that that device is is doing outstanding, um, and the hope is that it's going to continue to to rise the tide for everybody on the on the, the consumer side as well as the um, the employee training side, which is a lot of what we're doing today at Striver. Uh, you know, as it pertains to sports, to be honest, uh, on the one hand, like things continue to move forward, like I just said. Um, on the other hand, and we probably talked about this last time we spoke, you know, there there are certain like laws of physics things uh, that, that are very hard to overcome with virtual reality in sports. So you know, I, I don't think we've seen the, the most groundbreaking innovations relative to where maybe we thought we, what we thought we'd see five years ago, but uh, teams continue to use it. Um, teams continue to adopt it and bring it in house. It continues to be an extremely valuable tool uh, and you know, everything is going really well. Um, so, you know, at a high level, this is still a thing, and it's only growing. It's definitely not contracting. All right, let's talk about the laws of physics things for for a moment. Um, so, you mean as a as a training tool that there is still some limitations that it can't actually give emulate the practice regimens that are that are really necessary for athletes and teams? Yeah, good question. So, you know what, what I mean by that is, uh, and as you recall from our our previous conversations, and I'm sure some people have seen this online. So. We, the majority of our training and, and all of it for in sports and, and with football specifically is using 360 video. Yeah. Um, and we put a camera, you know, a camera on a tripod and we, you know, we move the tripod around the field based on kind of the vantage point that we're trying to capture quarterback linebacker, whatever. Uh, we, we still have not put a camera on a helmet because when the camera moves or is on the helmet, you know, the, the body and the head move so fast and shake that it, it, it would, it makes people nauseous when you actually put a headset on. So, that is something that we've only tested. We've never actually done it for customers because we don't believe in it, and we certainly don't want to get anybody sick, and then they're never coming back. You know, so so that that is out. Um, and stabilization technology uh, probably will never get to the point where that is a, a viewable experience in a headset. So the next frontier for you know virtual training, from my perspective, is 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 game film, um, or or even on the practice field, you know what's called light field technology, um, outside in capture content capture uh the digitization of the playing field and therefore i can go into the pixels um as if it were like a video game even though it's real video and i can basically have any view from anywhere on the field in real time and and i can move around in it and it's very steady Uh, this is what intel is investing a lot of money in on the consumer side uh in 2d first let alone in, in virtual reality so that is definitely the future. I mean, that is a multi-hundred million dollar, maybe a billion decade long project that we just don't have those resources at Striver. <laughs> so yeah. so that, that is not something that, that, that we're going to be able to invest in, but, but that's where the world is going, and, and that's the hope for the future. So let's talk about your relationships with the teams then. I know you did some stuff with Clemson, and I know you're working with, you're based out in San Francisco, you've been working with the 49ers. Can you kind of talk about what, what are they utilizing virtual reality for these days? Yeah, so, so at a high level, you know, not, not much has changed. Um, you know, still a tool to give players mental reps uh, when their body is off the field, but their brain thinks it's on the field, uh, whether that is a backup who doesn't get any, uh, many, if any, reps in, in real life, 
and wants to get more mental reps, uh, you know, from the, the confines of the meeting room, uh, whether that's a starter who, who wants to get more reps because practice time is limited uh, at all levels of football, um, quarterbacks, linebackers, kickers for visualization, safeties, um, you know, running backs and blitz pickup, we, we continue to see that happening, um, not unlike five years ago, six years ago, when this was an academic project for me at Stanford. So, you know, that, that hasn't changed. Um, also a very valuable recruiting tool um, collegiately as well as in free agency in the NFL. You know, guys say, oh, I, I want that. Um, <laughs> if I'm going to come play for this team, that, that's cool. That's how I learn, right? I'm a, I'm a new generation of, of learner um, compared to the Drew Breeses and the Tom Brady's of the world that you know, they've been doing this for 20-plus years and they, they learn differently. So um, a, a lot of that ha- really hasn't changed. You know, what, what, what has changed on our side is, uh, with the teams is, is really just trying to make the product better uh, a lot of under the hood improvements to the speed, uh, the, the 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 speed of processing a video capture. You know, making quizzes and and various things to test players' knowledge. You know, trying to kind of move the needle towards our vision of predictive analytics, where we know if somebody actually understands a play or not. Um, that that's a lot of what what we're doing. Um, but the high level thesis, to be honest, uh, hasn't really changed. You know, I'm happy to talk about you know adoption as well. But um, that that's kind of what we're seeing. Um, I, I am interested, though, in terms of all this training stuff with, with virtual reality. Um, as we're taping here, the, the collective bargaining agreement, and probably by the time that this does air, is being hammered out between the players and the owners. And one of the things that we think is going to be in it is, again, a decrease in practice time as negotiated by the two sides. Um, one of the big issues in the NBA and other sports as well as load management, which I, I think might be messaged incorrectly in the media as to what it is, but there's certainly a different viewpoint of managing one's body as they move forward. So I would imagine that bigger, better in this realm is going to be extremely attractive and valuable to teams moving forward. For sure. I mean, I I think we're only going to see uh, a reduction in on-field practice, a further reduction in on-field practice time going forward. Um, that, that, That will probably be a battle that, that the players win because um, the owners really care about all they care about is TV revenue, right? And, and the games on, on Sundays and, and Saturdays and Thursdays. So um, I, I'm with you for sure. Okay, so as, as practice time decreases, how do you give players the necessary uh, tools to prepare? And, you know, running and lifting and, and even tackling, right? Like physical is, is kind of a given at that level, Um Mental is what often separates people, and especially as you look at, like, the quarterback position where it is a veteran-laden position. Um, guys that are in their, you know, early 30s, mid-30s now with Brady and Breeze and these guys playing into their 40s, like, they don't need physical reps. They need to just keep their mind sharp, right, um, and kind of do the bare minimum physically. So uh, I, I think that can only help the industry, can only help Striver, can only help any other sports science related tool where the goal is to keep you off your feet while somehow continuing to keep you engaged. Um, very aligned with you there. Um, and I would think in the youth ranks too, where they are trying their best to manage injuries and safety issues with parents who are going to put their kids into, um, you know, leagues and teams through whether it's high school or, or whatever kind of travel leagues they get a part of. Is the barrier for entry still difficult for youth leagues with virtual reality and that type of training, or where does that kind of stand as you get into markets like that? Yeah, that's a great question. This is something that we've you know constantly waffled on internally at Striver. You know, 
whether to and then how much to invest in this side because it, it, it's a totally different offering um, and it, it, it's more of a consumer play than, than like a business to business play. Um, you know, sports is, is with the teams is more of a business to business play, and then certainly the work we're doing in the enterprise with the WalMarts and the Verizons of the world is obviously entirely business to business. So, uh, very different business model for us. And, and yeah, I, I, I think the phrase you use, barriers to entry, I think they're still pretty high, to be honest. I mean, uh, headsets are, are, are cheaper for sure. I mean, now like decent, you know, an Oculus Go is, is a couple hundred dollars. Um, so that has come down a lot uh, from five years ago, even three years ago, where you needed a $500 headset and a $2,000 computer to make this all work. So that has helped. But when you think about, you know, the cost of multiple headsets for a team, maybe you'd want five headsets for a team as well as the software needed to power it, the content that's there, you know, whatever, right? We're still talking 1500 bucks, yeah. uh, maybe 2000 bucks when you add it all up. And I mean, that, that's the same or more as, as a Huddle subscription um, or some of the, the other, you know, the other uh, tools out there that, that just house basic film, right? Weight room equipment, right? I mean, high school teams are doing bake sales to afford some of this stuff <laughs> even today, um, yeah. other than in the most affluent areas. So I still think we're, we're a few years away from seeing the, the commoditization reach the point where, where this can be a, a really viable youth tool, despite what you said a very attractive thing for parents to say, oh, you know what, like, good, they can get reps without having to really yeah. practice all the time <laughs> and de- decrease the load on their body and the risk of getting a concussion. Right, right. yeah, so. the load goes down. They're, they're used to being at home probably playing games anyway. This would not be an unusual way to practice for them. There seems to be a lot of, like, modern applications for it if people would buy into that. Um, yeah, let, for sure. Let me ask you a little bit about um, the broadcast side because I remember talking to you a few years back, and I, I was sitting there buying into the – we're all going to be watching games in glasses and sitting courtside or right behind home plate or whatever it may be. And that just hasn't, ha- and that just hasn't happened yet. And I don't know. There's just something. I, 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 I probably told you, be careful. I probably said, be careful on that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, cause it's just, you know, like the, yeah. the idea of it is so amazing, you know? And, and I remember, I think we were probably sitting there talking about like, how are teams going to sell tickets if everybody's got a courtside seat yeah. now? And it just hasn't manifested that way. So maybe I'm just a dreamer, I, I suppose. Yeah, so it, it hasn't, for sure. I mean, and you, you, we, we, it hasn't been for lack of effort. I mean, we've seen the NBA, you know, partner with companies like NextVR and, and Google's Daydream platform, and, and we, we've seen it, um, Samsung with their gear device and all that. So it hasn't been for lack of effort. I, I think, you know, I think, A, I think there's a couple things going on. Number one, it, it just takes time. I mean, yeah, think about where we were just five years ago with, with, the, with smartphones. Um, they were really popular, but they hadn't necessarily taken over the world. You know, even today, not everyone on planet Earth uses a smartphone. So when we're talking about a, a technology and a piece of hardware that goes on your face instead of in your hand, like there are, there is more friction with something like that, right? Um, inherently, no matter, no matter what it is and how cool it is. Um, and then on top of that, the, the content capture side, I mean, think about how, is, how a tune the human eye is, you know, we live in a 20K world. If you're pumping 1080p into a headset and it look, kind of looks like you're underwater a little bit, no one wants to do that yeah. for more than a minute at a time, right? So, so I, I, I do think it's going to get there. I don't think it's going uh, to spell the end of the world for leagues, for in, in-person attendance by any means, but there are a lot of factors at play from frame rates and resolutions and, um, 
and, and internet connectivity. There's just a lot there that, that is, is a decade or more away from being really freaking good yeah. <laughs> relative to the in-person experience. And, so, and the rights holders have to, and the rights holders have to be on board with this, right? They're going to have to make the investment For to sure. make this happen too, because yep. listen, and, and you know this now, I mean, rights fees may be going up, but it's just more competition. These networks are siphoning off viewers for a variety of reasons competition cord cutting all of those issues that are out there and so you would need them at the same time to be like we want to invest in making this happen 100 percent you're you're totally right and what what is the value of those rights yeah Uh, right so people are watching right Uh, yeah um do you envision then because we talk to a lot of groups about second screen experience do you envision that maybe the the um improvement in access to vr for sports viewing comes in that form like a second screen type experience you know on the one hand i'm, I'm the complete wrong person to ask this yeah. question because i'm i'm kind of low low tech in my day-to-day life <laughs> I, I i like to play golf and be as far <laughs> away from my phone as possible yeah um you know on the other hand i i have had a front row seat you know to a lot of this for the last few years as we've you know obviously looked at vr and, and ar in a number of ways so I, I do think that a second screen is, is – we already have one today. It's called your cell phone, yeah. right? Uh, and everyone being on Instagram or Twitter or, or whatever while they're, while they're watching um, games uh, and interacting in that, in that digital world, like, that's happening. So I, I do think we will continue to see the evolution of the second screen, uh, whether it's I'm hanging out in a, in a headset or with a pair of smart glasses on for five hours to get it or whether it's a complimentary – component um or maybe it's my contact lens right like like that that's going to happen but are these things months months or years or decades away yeah. who knows I, I think i i just i think it's irresponsible to um project anything definitively in this space at this point because the the reliance of the tech and the hardware is, is so massive all right so then um i'll let you go with this then then like what is the next step for for vr for striver what are you guys looking at over the next 12 months that that you think is going to be hitting the market or is going to be the advancement in the technology so our you know we probably not the next 12 months to be honest but um you know, we, we do continue to 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 play a big role in the sports world you know we still have a, a very steady, uh, stable of customers there. Um, we're continuing to invest in sports as much as we can relative, like I said, to the laws of physics and, and other things. Um, and and our, our enterprise business is, is just going crazy um, because this simulation-based learning via virtual reality is, is a thing in, in the enterprise. Um, so that, that that's the business right now. The, the long game for Striver and that's why I said I don't think 12 months is, is necessarily the timeline. Um, the long game for us is all about predictive analytics. Uh, when people put headsets on, they look around the world just like the virtual world, just like they do the real world. So, like, that, that is a fact. Um, we have corroborated that again and again and again. So if, if that is what happens when you're in a headset, why can't we build, you know, predictive models uh, to figure out how people may behave in the real world as a result of what they're doing in the simulations, right? That, that is our vision. That is where we want to go. Um, is that 12 months or 12 years away? I, I don't know. <laughs> but but that, that's where we're trying to go. And that's when we're officially in a movie. That's incredible. We'll <laughs> see when yeah, it happens. Yeah. Well, I, I, for humanity's sake, I hope it doesn't go crazy. <laughs> but, but, but if you apply this, if you apply this to sports, I mean, I was saying this five years ago, kind of selling the dream to our teams, and, and we're getting closer, but, it, but it, it's going to take some time. I mean, 
in theory, you could put a quarterback through the first 15 plays on the script in, in VR, um, you know, the night before the game. And in theory, the data could tell you whether or not he's going to know what to do on play seven, right? Hey, play seven, he's not really comfortable. Chuck it out. <laughs> huh. um, that, 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 that's where we want to go with, with all of our customers, sports being no exception. But it, it is going to take some time to get there. It's really cool. Uh, it's great catching up with you, Derek. Yeah. Derek Belch is the CEO yeah, of thanks, Striver. Brent. Thanks so much for being on today. Anytime. Thank you. Up next, Oren Moravchik from Respect Basketball on analytics that make hoops better. This is the Future Sport Podcast. Future Sport Podcast is brought to you by 3 Advance. So let's take a moment to thank our friends at 3 Advance. These guys are ranked one of the nation's top app developers. Their user experience and cloud expertise has helped to grow a bunch of sports tech startups, including Team Builder, T-Box Tour, and In-Game Fantasy. So if you're looking for a development partner to bring your future sport tech to life, look these guys up. Go to 3advance.com. They're the team to make it happen, and advance you will. That's the number 3advance.com, and tell them Future Sport sent you. Our guests this week are Oren Moravchik and Leo Moravchik, the CEO and COO of Respect Basketball, RSPCT. They join us all the way from Israel, and they are leaders in the shot tracking space. Hi, guys. How are you? Excellent. Excellent. How are you, Bram? I'm great. Um, let's talk about your background a little bit. How did you guys get into basketball analytics? Well, first of all, uh, I'm a huge basketball fan. You grew up in Israel, so uh, all the NBA games are at 3 and 4 a.m., but it doesn't bother anybody, and there's a whole culture of people waking up at these hours and watching, watching NBA because there's, there's nothing like that. Uh, there's also some pretty good uh, basketball scene in, uh, in Europe, um, and Makabitov is a great team. So um, that's, that's the background. Both Leo and I are tech people, so uh, both, are, both of us are, uh, come from tech and come from understanding of tech, and uh, Israel is a, is a great place for innovation in tech. I've competed in the, I was a part of the Israeli rifle, a sports rifle shooting team for 20 years. Sports rifle shooting is an Olympic sport. Uh, it's a very challenging, very unique sport where you lie prone or you stand or you kneel with a rifle and you try to shoot 60 shots at a target 50 yards away. Um, it's beautiful, it's challenging, it takes a lot of uh, effort and the objective there is pretty much like basketball. You want to make a shot but in order to make the shot, you have to be super accurate and you have to know what you're doing and work both and to have the right, uh, the right uh, work methods, both physically and mentally. So this is something I did for all my life. And in parallel with being an NBA fan, it was clear for me that I have to, you know, to unite these two aspects. Um, well, I don't want to get too off track, but are there analytics in rifle shooting? Or is, that, is that being used in training, modern training now? Um, not at the level that we can do in basketball. Basketball is much more elaborate. Uh, but if you compare free throw shooting to uh, rifle shooting, is pretty much like free throw shooting. But you have you definitely have analytics from the first moment you get to the national team. You get you're told to bring a to bring a notebook. I brought an Excel, and from the first moment you track, you see which ammunitions, which times, which 
positions, what aspects of how do you calibrate how you calibrate your rifle, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and how and and you evaluate your shooting. So there are definitely analytics, but this the ability to apply analytics in basketball is much bigger. Yeah, well, because I mean, for the most part, if we're talking about free throw shooting, we're talking about a stationary thing and repetitive motion and all of that stuff. What you're talking about in terms of basketball is all the movement that goes along with it. So, can you talk about just in general? the growth of analytics in the sport of basketball and how you've seen it change over time. Um, so I think, first of all, first of all, that's, that's exactly correct. When you take, uh, take free throw shooting, that's very, that's very stationary. That's a very limited aspect. When you talk about shots from different positions and different times of the game with different pressures, different techniques, you should, you should definitely, when you, when it's a set shot or when you're contested, your arc goes up when you're contested usually. Uh, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, then basketball is much more complex. There's much more room for analytics. The way we see this, the analytics space is, uh, first of all, I think a lot of the drive for that that came from another Israeli company called Sportview, uh, which um, which was acquired by Stats, and that was the first tracking that got into the NBA. Uh, one of their founders, Gal Oz, is a very close friend and in uh, our advisor, and we see that. In general, I think analytics is something that people appreciated for the, from the first moment. People in basketball space appreciated from the first moment. But the challenge, like every every technology going into a new space, the challenge is find is for the tech people to find how to how to not bother about the tech, not bother about about the cool engineering stuff, but to find how to create value for the actual users in the industry. Whether it's a player shooting, whether it's a coach. Uh, helping the player, whether it's the coach making the decisions, whether it's front office, they know what they need. They have very specific needs. They have very specific limitations. And the objective of technology and analytics is to assist them in that. Until you understand that, then you can't provide real value for them. For example, uh, right now we're going into tryout season. Uh, we have, we're creating amazing value there. And the objective here is that when team sits and analyzes and tries to decide regarding a player, the objective of analytics is to give a very clear-cut answer on value. That's it. So, um, so we see that from the, from the tech and analytics aspects, there was a process of learning how to, how to create value for the teams. For the professionals on the other side, for coaches, players, and, the, and teams, there were ch- challenges of, first of all, appreciating how much value analytics and technology can give, then overcoming all the obstacles of, of integrating those, that technology analytics into the actual processes of the team, getting the players to wear the sensors, having somebody charge the sensors, have, uh, have people analyze it and give context to the data, making sure it's accurate enough, etc., etc., etc. But we see that already um, various tech that, that teams are using is creating value. It's already creating value. It's already bringing results. And we're just at the beginning of that. I think there's a huge future for analytics and uh, basketball. Um, I like to talk to analytics companies about the education of understanding what the information they provide and what it means. Um, is there a barrier for coaches, for players to have an understanding of what they have in front of them when they receive the data? It depends. Uh on the player and the coach. Uh, what we saw in teams is um, different understanding, different level of, of, of uh, cooperation. Um, 
we start with the analytics department, obviously. Uh, they know what we have. They need us to, to actually um, get value, uh, give insight to the coaching staff, to the players. Um, and they, they can they, they understand what they're, what they're having. The players have so much on their mind. The coaches have so much on their mind. Each one of them is, is, is under a lot of stress, under a lot of pressure to perform terrific every night. It's not easy. And adding more stuff to them, more more challenges, more missions, more work for them to do, it is, is not easy. So some of them, you know, we have NBA teams that uh, put up big screens next to the baskets to show every shot, how it goes in, and it gets them to compete. It gets them excited. Uh, the best quote we have from uh, one of the teams is, it turned uh, shooting workout from burden to fun. So it does get there, but... The players, it depends on, on their level of um, not cooperation, but how willing they are, how, how much they're interested in actually putting in the time and understanding what they're seeing and then working with the system. But once it's happened, they're, they're, they're hooked, meaning they can't go back to just shooting for uh, fun or just shooting for without, without registering. Um, they have the data. They want to track the data. They want to see what they did last week and last month. They want to see if they're improving, if they're degrading where from and, and what's the cause. They're, they're um, competitive by nature. So showing them another level where they can excel and they can get better, um, it was very natural for them to, to accept. So I, I wonder from your viewpoint, because you're doing this, you're providing this stuff, you've been doing this for some time, or in your high-level athlete, so you know what it takes to perform at a specific level. Have you seen the game change? through all this information? Have you like literally witnessed it change? Definitely, definitely. First of all, um, I know rifle shooting at a, at a very high level, but uh, uh, <coughs> sorry, in basketball, I, I focus on, I understand shooting data better than better than most people, I think. We have more, more high level data and uh, assigned players than anybody else and at, at better resolution, better accuracy. And we, so we have, we have data that nobody ever had Nobody ever had half the NBA's, all the shots from all the players and half the NBA over, over years. Uh, and we have a great understanding of, of shooting quality. Um, we do see that it changes the game. We see, we see the first steps in that. We think, I think there's a long way to go, but we see we have teams where, they, where, where the analytics teams come and tell us how the coaches change their offensive sets. We see how we see how players take shots from uh, locations where we indicated as the sweet spot, even if the data didn't, even if the even if the field goal percent didn't show that, but our data shows that. Uh, we've seen at different levels. We've seen cases where where a player would come, start to use the system, work with the coach, and within minutes improve. So so the perception shift hadn't compl- hadn't uh, hadn't been completed yet. It happened at the NBA level. At NBA, NBA level, they understand that you have to measure shooting in this way, and they see the potential. But our goal is to bring it to, and we're we're halfway there, is to bring it to every kid and every player at every level, because it's possible. Because once you see the level of of, of shooting, once you see the potential, the 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 potential and the di- and the distance from the potential, once you see how easy it is to realize that potential. Then you know there's, uh, you know it's going to it's going to to catch no matter what. 
So I guess I also I'm wondering, since you are likely working with teams around the world and not just with the NBA and the American markets, and clearly the NBA is by far the best league in the world, exemplified by the amount of people that are getting up at four in the morning in Israel to watch their games get played. Um, do you think analytics or have you seen any proof that analytics are closing the gap on a competitive level um, in European countries or other areas of the world to the American basketball player? I think it's it's a really good question, but uh, I, I can tell that that European players you'd be amazed how much talent there is there. Uh, it's uh, but I, I I think it touches another point. It touches another point that 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 we are able to we were able to find and detect. Uh, there is so much talent out there, and a player could be shooting could be shooting amazingly. He could be super consistent. All these shots hit at exactly the same place. But a very common error for players is that their shots, when, ta- when they take it from a specific location, they're a little off by a few inches to the left, to the right, uh, uh, to 10 o'clock, whatever. If you're a little offset, even if you're shooting amazing, you'll shoot 40% or 50% and nobody will, be, nobody will be aware of how well you're shooting. Your talent won't come out. In order for, ta- for your talent to come out, you need to be both consistent and accurate. And that's something that... especially with younger players it doesn't happen much it's 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 more common to be a little offset so talent all around the world is not is not seen it's not detected and we're able to to let it come out i can say that talent wise there's amazing talent outside outside the u.s i wish i could tell you names i wish it could show you some groupings of players uh, of promising players uh from europe um but there's a, a huge amount of talent regarding how to turn that talent into a player that at clutch time at game seven is uh, over over Kawhi Leonard is, is is able to make that shot? That's a difference that I think is <laughs> is not in the not on the talent level and on the practice, but on the level of expertise overall. That's that's um, almost all, uh, that's almost uh, entirely uh, exists in the NBA teams and in a few top European teams as well. But until you shot, until you competed at these levels, until you know what you need to do to, at these levels, mentally, physically, uh, uh, team ment- team mentality-wise, then you haven't. You're not ready. Yeah, Kawhi Leonard, LeBron James, Kevin Durant, Steph Curry—they appreciate the final comment there. That, that there is no analytic that will definitely make you any more clutch than they are. At least right now, we'll see down the road. Oren Moravchik and Leo Moravchik, the CEO and COO of Respect Basketball. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much, Graham. Up next, Mike Kruger from USA Football on playing the game safely, if that's even possible in the times of COVID-19. This is the Future Sport Podcast. Our guest this week is the USA Football Director of Coaching, Mike Kruger, who joins us to talk about the future of dealing with head injury in the youth aspects of the sport. Hey, Mike, how are you? Thanks for joining us. 
Hey, Bram, thanks so much. On behalf of USA Football, we're really excited to be joining you today and uh, sharing some insights and, uh, and some of the good work we're doing with the Teach Aids group out of Stanford. And, uh, but thanks for having us. Really appreciate it. All right, so let's talk about what's going on. Obviously, safety has become a paramount issue in the sport of football. How are you guys addressing it? Yeah, absolutely it, it is. It, it remains a concern not just in football but across many sports, um, but definitely does affect our sport, and, and safety is one of our primary concerns uh, as the national governing body of youth football in the country. Um, so everything we do, um, you know, gears back to the, the health and well-being of our young athletes. Uh, with that being said, uh, it, it kind of precipitated why we're talking today, and that is uh, us trying to stay on the cutting edge of providing education and resources to coaches so that they are familiar with and understand the ramifications and, and signs and symptoms surrounding any, any head injury or injury, uh, you know, at all. So uh, with that, we've, we've partnered with TeachAids uh, out of Stanford University. Dr. Pia Sorkar and, and uh, Coach Dick Gold have put together a revolutionary uh, concussion education module that we have included into our coach certification uh, pathway and we're really excited about that uh, simply because it's it's current it's it's interactive it really truly engages a learner in a way that will um, we think help coaches uh, even familiarize themselves more with what to look for but more importantly what to do in instances where they might be concerned about uh, some possible uh, head injury or concussions uh, so what, what do they learn from it can you kind of take us through what the education is yeah, absolutely. So again, very interactive and, and what it is, and, and there is a virtual reality component to it, uh, but you get the same, uh, you, you get a lot of the same experience when you just take it on a desktop computer. But really it's about a 12, a uh, little over 12 minute concussion course. And what you do, you are actually inside the helmet and you, you're put in a situation where you receive a jar, a jarring hit uh, in, within the context of a game. And you have to make a decision on whether you want to stay in the game or whether you want to come out of the game. And it takes you through a scenario of what, what happens and what symptoms you might be experiencing during that, uh, during that episode. So as you go through the, the concussion module, you, the, a doctor comes in and talks to you about what you're experiencing and, and what the re- return to play protocol is and, and that if, you, if we can identify it early, you know that it'll, it'll shorten the amount of time that you might be out of the game. But it also puts concussion, it, it also gives a lot of background information on uh, what to look for, the look for is the signs and symptoms, and the fact that um, you know a, a concussion can be can be a severe injury. It can also be uh, an injury that uh, you know you could uh, that doesn't have to be as severe. It falls uh, anywhere on a on a very wide spectrum. So uh, the most important thing is knowing what to look for and and how to treat and what to do the next steps to take. So. Um, one of the neat things about that I think coaches are, are really, and players as well, are really gaining from the experience is it takes you through an animated fly-through of the brain and, and gives you a, it, an animation that compares the neural pathways to roads in your brain and when those get disruptive, what it does to the traffic flow. And, but it, it puts it in a way that's easily understood and, and that therefore makes it um, you know, much more effective when coaches step on the field and, and know what, what to look for and how to treat their athletes should they experience something of the sorts. How about in practice? How are you guys? Are you guys practicing differently now with kids? Do you do you have you changed form? Have you changed amount of hitting? What have been the changes since all of all of the news has come out about head injury? 
Yeah, well, USA Football was the first organization in the country to have nationally accredited standards on, um, on acclimation and um, as far as heat goes, as well as contact guidelines. Uh, we continue to evaluate those and look at those. those um, the current guidelines that we have are, are accepted um, by the National Association of uh, the Trainers Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, and such. So we do have those guidelines in place. With our new football development model that we are uh, putting together and that just launched this past weekend um, in Louisville, Kentucky at our national conference, we are continuing to look at uh, numerous ways to reduce especially gratuitous head impact and, and look at ways we can continue to make the game safer through practice and competition guidelines um, and as well as other safety-related concerns, heat and hydration, sudden cardiac arrest, um, et cetera. So we do continue to look at ways, even though we have those guidelines in place and they are, are um, some of the best uh, in the country the one, as far as accreditation goes, we continually look at ways to improve upon them. And we have a group of our medical advisory group looking at those right now uh, to see where they might need to be updated and how we can continue as we learn and as research continues to grow, uh, we continue to grow, to grow with it and make sure that we're making the best possible recommendations and guidelines to uh, the many stakeholders we have across the country. We've talked to a lot of product makers, of course, who are making new helmets and they're accessible clearly at higher levels um, if they're accepted by the NFL or NCAA or the, the higher levels. I, I do wonder, um, is there new equipment in youth football now? Is that being brought in? Is there a, a barrier for entry for that? How, how are you guys viewing modern helmets and modern equipment? Well, there, there's absolutely no doubt that in terms of equipment that the game is safer than it's ever been in the history of the game. Um, equipment um, evolution continues to happen uh, on, on, a, on a yearly basis, if not even more so on a monthly basis. There's, there's ways that the equipment manufacturers uh, continue to improve their products, and as they continue to improve, those, those pieces of equipment do make their, themselves and their way down to the youth level. Um, I think we would be naive to think that the top-of-the-line equipment gets down to every place uh, in the country um, in terms of the youth market simply because of, of different uh, you know, socioeconomic uh, situations across the country. Um, so we do at USA Football, we do offer equipment grants for a lot of those uh, areas that are um, underserved uh, so that they can get the most up-to-date and current equipment. Um, but so to answer your question, yes, that, that equipment is, is definitely improving. It's definitely made the game safer than it's ever been. At the same time, we want to be absolutely clear as an organization that equipment is only one piece of safety. And, and to be honest with you, it might be um, it, it's not always the most important part. It's what we do when we put the equipment on. Um, same thing with the guidelines that we establish. We can give certain times and different amounts of time to, to, for contact and for practice limitations, but it's what we do in the context of that time that's hugely important and why we're so um, excited about the football development model and the progressions that it show that are developmentally appropriate. They're geared toward what is what is best for a, a developing athlete at the time it's best for them, so doing the right thing at the right time. And uh, we're very proud of that, and we're looking at making sure that we provide the education and the resources so that when coaches hit the field, that it, it really, again, equipment being a very important piece of that, but what we do and how we train and how we teach the game while they're wearing equipment is equally, if not more important. 
this is going to put you on the spot, and I hope it doesn't. Yeah. And, and But I am curious if you've seen, and, and maybe you don't have a number or maybe you do, have you seen with all these different interventions, with the course that you're you're talking about and the equipment changes, has there been a downturn in head injury? There Absolutely there has been. In fact, in, in youth, uh, in the youth game, in the youth space, um, incidences of concussion are, are incredibly low, are incredibly low. One of the things that we find, however, is that there is really a lack of substantial research at the youth level when it comes to sport-related concussion. Um, we are getting more and more all the time because of the attention it's getting. Um, but we have uh, the research that we have garnered, and obviously we stay on very, very close to um, and, and monitor closely. Um, incidents of sport-related concussion at the youth level um, have had, they've spiked recently in the past couple years, which we think is due to really increased education. But um, they have they seem to have uh, leveled off now as uh, uh, you know globally across the country. What we're seeing, especially in the youth space. Um, last thing for you, I, I'm curious because you you must get questions from parents about how to talk about the safety of the game. Um, what do you tell them these days about playing football for their kids? Um, first and foremost, when when a parent asks, you know, should I should I let my child play or should I, you know, what um, what what do we what do you know about tackle football or, or just football in general? What we find is this: that um, the most important thing is that we we want to play as in a role of educating. We want to educate parents so that they're working. There's a lot of information out there, and with all due respect, there's there's a lot of misinformation out there about um, you know the 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 what what role the safety plays in the game of this, particularly tackle football. Um, so our mission with that, when parents ask, is to educate them and let them know. Um, and that, that, again, is why it's very exciting with our football development model. What we feel is that there should be multiple entry points and pathways and options for parents to choose from if they want their, their child to participate. Um, we're, we are proponents of um, football. As long as it's taught correctly, all, any football is, is good football. So we, But we, at the same time, want to make sure that it's taught in a progressive way that introduces the child and prepares them for the contact aspect of the game. We can do that through a non-contact game type like flag football. We can do that through a limited contact game type like padded flag football or what we, um, a product called tackle bar. Um, and we also have modified versions of the game, which introduce it in a progressive way that it teaches someone how to engage their body with another person. There is contact in numerous sports, not just football. There's contact in many sports. Our, our, our responsibility is to make sure that our athletes that are playing any of those contact games are, are understand and are confident and competent with the, and comfortable with the idea of engaging their body with another person and how to do that safely. And that's what, uh, and if we can do that, then I think parents feel much more educated. Um, they feel much more inclined to make an, an educated decision about what is the appropriate placement for their child in terms of, of, of sport in general, but especially uh, one that might involve contact with another person. So um, our, our role, what we feel real strongly about, and we embrace um, very passionately is the educational role and making sure that we are educating and providing not just not just coaches but parents as well parents and stakeholders and and guardians of of our our youth and in terms of the sport mike kruger is the usa football director of coaching thanks so much for the time mike ram thanks so much for having me i sure appreciate it that will do it for us this week as always the future is now this is the future sport podcast i'm bram weinstein
The Future Sport Podcast is brought to you by 3Advance, developers of sports tech apps that are AI-powered and UX-focused. So if you're looking to create some apps for your startup or your sports biz calls for some artificial or business intelligence, you should check out 3Advance. They're incredible. Go to 3Advance.com. That's the number 3Advance.com.